Sophie, what keeps you from making your art? Crippling anxiety? Wrong. It's resistance. Oh. I'm Abby Wamba. I'm a stand-up comedian and a parent and a writer, and I am battling resistance. I'm Sophie Hagen, stand-up comedian, author, and I am battling a constant feeling of impending doom. Perfect. That is resistance. Good job battling it. Great. And you, dear listener, are listening to Help Hole, which is a real podcast, really called Help Hole. I can't believe it. I love it so much. And no one has even one time complained that that's the name of our podcast. Yet. Uh, it's a podcast that comes out every other week. So that's two episodes a month. One of these episodes is one where I will read a self-help book and then tell Abby what I got from it. And then I'll have read a self-help book and I'll tell Sophie what I got out of my self-help book. What a team. And if you don't think that's enough podcasting from us, you should go in and join our Patreon. Uh, we have two bonus episodes a month where we discuss movies or a person, an app, a podcast, something fun like that. If you sign up for our Patreon, you will essentially get one episode a week. Full-length episodes, yes. Bonus episode. I don't know why I'm trying to explain it as if they wouldn't get it, but one a week. Every other week, it's, a, <laughs> it's one of these. The other one a week is the bonus. You know what I mean? You get it. And there are 31 people already who are Patreons. They, and they're listening to those episodes. 31. We make those episodes for 31 people right now. And it feels we worth it. We are fine with that. <laughs> yeah, we love it. Thank you so much if that's you. We have different tiers and they're called the Accountability Buddies and the yeah. Better Balls and mm -hmm. the Life Hags and the Tryhards. And those were yeah. all things that we considered naming this podcast and we still picked Hell Pole. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know and we have one try hard and a try hard is our top tier and it means that we now have like another producer of the podcast yes lily lily, lily is our first patreon producer of the show we still have thank you we got uh 26 account of billy buddies 27 we have now. three ooh, yeah. three better balls mm -hmm. uh, and we love we love you we love you all very much thank you so much just before we start, a note to say we cannot do this podcast without these books that people have spent years researching and writing. And there's usually always value in reading an entire book rather than just listening to a summary of what we thought was useful. So please go and support the authors and buy the books. This is not a review podcast. We love books like these and we really just love talking about them. And even if you don't like what we have to say about the books, buy them anyway, because we might be wrong. Help Today, I am presenting The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Sophie, what do you think about that as a title? What do you know about this book? Have you read it? Tell me. I've not read it. I think I'm scared of reading about art and creativity because I'm afraid that I need to face up to my own insecurities around it. It sounds violent. Whoa. Yeah. It's, very, it's very much a language of self-help, isn't it? You have to battle like each day is a war and you like it's very aggressive. I'd love to read like the cuddle of art. That's called the artist's way. <laughs> <laughs> These books exist. This is the sort of like masculine branch of self-help book, the like warrior mm. 
And then there's this other, I sort of think of Julia Cameron who wrote The Artist's Way and Stephen Pressfield who wrote this, The War of Art, as like two sides of the same coin. It's like Mm. Stephen Pressfield, they say so many of the same things, but like in such a different way. And Stephen Pressfield says it like he's your high school basketball coach. You got to get out there. You got to slaughter him. (laughs) And then Julia Cameron is like your high school guidance counselor. Right. I feel like Stephen Pressfield will tell you like, you just have to plow the field and spray the pesticides and like get down to business and go out every morning at 5 a.m. and do the thing. And and Julia Cameron's like, once you plant the seed, you have to sing to it. You know? this. Yeah. It's like the same universe, but this is what I they're saying. That. Yeah. No, she, so she's a gardener and he's a farmer. Yeah. Or he's a war farmer. He's a, he's a war farmer. <laughs> What's that? Someone who goes out after like a battle on a field and just like tidies it up a bit. What I think it is is our newest Patreon tier. The war farmers? Yeah. 45 pounds a month. You just gotta go out there, you just gotta pay 45 pounds a month and just get it done. Help That's so interesting to hear that you are afraid of reading something about art. I feel like I'm someone who thinks of you as very prolific. You make a lot of things. You do a lot of things. I'm surprised to hear you say that you're afraid of facing your fear of making art. Tell me more. This this is me quietly. I'm trying to type without you being able to hear. Unfortunately, you make a face when you're typing. (laughs) What does prolific mean? (laughs) Oh, yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I do. I agree. I am prolific. (laughs) You know, in the last podcast, actually, in the first 45 seconds of the podcast, I said the word imbibing. And then like 45 minutes later in the podcast, you questioned the author because you were like, that's not a real word. But you accepted it completely without flinching from me. I really appreciate that. I quite possibly just didn't listen to what you said. (laughs) I found out today that languishing is not the same as lavishing. So languishing for other people who don't speak English is like I'm rotting away. And I thought it meant like I'm having a great time just lying lying on my chaise long <laughs> eating grapes. So I've said that again, I've lived here now for 12 years in the UK. And still I've, I've said it maybe once a week when someone's been like, what are you up to? I'm just languishing on my sofa. People have been like, Wow. <laughs> She's depressed. She must be very depressed. (laughs) What I meant was I'm having a great old time on my sofa. So this is not the podcast to go to if you want English lessons. Maybe we can do a spinoff where I give you English lessons. I'd love that, actually. That would be really helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just just call me out on it when I say the wrong... Well, you do that. Just, Just teach me words like imbibbing and... I'm married to a Danish person and he will never listen to a podcast I make because he wants to still love me. And mm-hmm. I appreciate that dedication. But he has one linguistic folly I want him to keep so much. He speaks perfect fluent English. He speaks it with an American accent because I trained him. But he says he gets scold and scald mixed up. Do you know what these words mean? Scold. Well, this when you are sh- like shouting at someone, you are scolding them. Yeah, like tisk tisk tisk. It doesn't have to be shouting, but like saying that somebody did something wrong. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's scolding? Scold? 
I don't know that word, do I? It means to burn with hot water. And oh, he... yeah. I thought they were the same word. Oh, no. I'm training you this way. But it's so, it's such a good one because if we're like out in public and he's talking about like chastising our children and he's like, oh, and then they did this and we had to scald them. <laughs> I just like like start whistling and looking the other way, <laughs> like the people. I love the confidence of knowing that you get them mixed up and still going. Yeah, I'm just gonna give it a go. It's, a 50, <laughs> it's gotta be one of these 50, two. 50, chance, 50, 50, 50 chance that the CPS will be involved in this. <sighs> I think it's my favorite one. I feel like really excited that I know something he doesn't know. He knows a lot of things I don't know. Anyway, we might have some things that I choose not to teach you because of that. But anyway. That's fine. I'll accept. Okay. I, I love a language prank. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I have had to be fine with that. At this point, it's like that's my everyday life in this country. I'll say something and people will be like, oh, and then I'll never live it down. Good. That's good. We'll try to make more opportunities for that on this podcast. Can I just give a shout out to uh, myself in a couple of weeks when I listen back to this? Because I have to. And uh, I will hate myself for about an hour and a half for saying, oh, <laughs> shout out to me. Sorry about that. And for doing it twice. Okay. What are you afraid of about making art? You make so much art. Please tell me more. Yeah. You did a really good job avoiding the subject the last time I brought it up. I don't know. I think... I remember creating so much, it feels weird to call it art, but I, we know what we mean when we say art, you know? We know the air quotes that go around that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's dick jokes, a lot of it, isn't it? But <laughs> it's not high art. It is, it is art. It's not high art. It's dick jokes. But I used to write all the time. I would be desperate to go home from school because I would just go and sit down and start writing and then I would pull myself away to go have dinner and then go back and write until I fell asleep at the keyboard. And like, that was just my every, like that was every day. It was all I did and I loved it. And the same with stand up. When I started doing stand up, it was every day. Like I, I could not pull myself away from it. And now I think because I then made that my career and now my art is meant to at least pay the bills I don't know. It's it's become there's more pressure to it. I think more about what people will think of it. You know, instead of thinking, "Am I enjoying this?" What would be a good next sentence in this context? I think, "Will someone be mad at me for this so that I won't be able to pay my rent?" And that's not fun. And I feel like creativity is meant to be fun. So I'm at this point now where I'm like, oh, I still love it, and I can still love it, and I can still find the love for it. But so often it is overpowered by this annoying pressure. And this pressure doesn't make me do better, by the way. It's not like the voice that goes, but can you pay your rent? Makes me go, no, you're right. I'll write something even better. It just makes me go, I'm going to go watch TV then because this is helpless. I don't know what to do. I'm so excited to talk about this with you today. This is a universal feeling, Stephen Pressfield says, I, and I am going to believe him because it makes me feel better to think that everybody has this. I mean, it's something we've talked about before, but I think that it is really helpful to hear from people who make things that I like, make a lot of things seem like they don't have this problem. 
it's helpful for me to hear that they do mm. because there's this like construct for me less and less the more that I make and the more that I talk to other people that make things, but where it's like the blessed few don't struggle with this and that is what like makes them allowed to make this. If you're just enjoying making your art, if you just sit down at the table at your desk in the morning and go blah, 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 all day and you just waltz down and make yourself a cup of coffee and don't have any trouble sitting back down at your table, then you deserve to make something. And the point of this book is like, no, everybody has to get over these feelings and force themselves to do it in order to do it at all. That's interesting. It's really weird because part of me is like, I don't want to believe that. I want to believe that I'm the only one struggling because that means I don't deserve to do it. Mm. But I also want to believe that there is a way that I could just have fun with it and be creative without having to think about stress and anxiety. And that there's like, there is a, that I want it to be a goal I can reach, but that is perfection, which yeah. is also the reason I struggle to create art. <laughs> I think that there are things in this book that certainly help me believe that it can be easier. But there's also this promise that I think helps in a way that it's just never going to go away. And I hated that too when I first read it. That I, I was like, but I want it to be a solvable problem. But there is something that takes the pressure off a bit if it's like, it's not a solvable problem. It's going to come every day. And then these are the things you can do to do it anyway. There's also something that what you just said made me think of Rob Delaney is a comedian and writer and actor and I like he's great. He's so great and he wrote a book called The Heart That Works, which is one of my favorite <sighs> books of all time. I think we talked about it, didn't we? You you cried a lot. I mean, oh I don't I, if you don't cry that book you're heartless, but I cried less than you. I cried the entire time and I haven't re-listened to it, but I do plan to when I just like need a three and a half hour cry again. It's so beautiful and generous and incredible story about the life and death of his son, Henry, and how he like had to keep living after that because he has three other mm. kids and his own mm. life. Don't and cry just, now, Abby. Uh, I won't right now, but cry. anyway, yesterday he posted on Instagram that it was his 22-year sober anniversary. And the last line of his post was, let me be proof that you can still have a silly, wonderful, weird existence that's interesting without alcohol. And then the sentence after that was like, you're not so special that you don't deserve that. <gasps> Rob. Isn't that so beautiful. I just love that so much. And it reminded me of what you just said, that it's like, yeah, there is something special about being so tormented that you can't do it. And what if like we take that away from ourselves and be like, we're not actually so special that the exact set of circumstances that can keep us from doing this thing. Well, do you know why I think it is? And then I'll let you do the book. <laughs> I <laughs> I think it's because it feels like, and it's made out to be a luxury, right? To be an artist, yeah. to do art, because it requires time, which you're lucky if you have enough time in your day to do something you enjoy, you know, for free, because capitalism. So I get the feeling there's like a, a glorification of writers or creatives who are like, you know, I'm just staring at a blank piece of paper and I just want to go and watch TV or like... It's been suggested to me to make social media videos about my upcoming book where I'm like, 
It could be you saying, I'm going to go right now. And then it's just a clip of you playing The Sims. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't, I, I, there's a part of me that feels really bad about that. No one's asking me to write a book. No one's asking me to do stand-up. Like, if anything, what is being asked of me by society at the moment is to be a great person in my community or to become a nurse and work for the NHS. Or like, that is what we need. No one's ever like, we really need stand-up. <laughs> you know, we really need you to sit and write a book and then be praised for that. So there's a part of me that's like, I don't, I hate complaining about how hard it is because it's like, well, no one's asking you to fucking do this. Like, it's a privilege and a, you're lucky that you even get to do it. So I'm like, oh, but okay, then I'm just not going to complain about it. Well, I think that it's true that complaining is not going to help and that, that if you're not aware of the conversations you're having about this, you sound like an idiot. But <laughs> but like you can do what you can do and you can feel like the idea of this book, we have to get into the actual fucking book yeah. instead of me taking all these side quests to explain it to you one by one by your query. But <laughs> his thing is like you have what's inside you. You can only birth the thing that's that's growing inside of you. And your job is to do that. It's not to like decide on a different thing that you should be doing instead. That actually that is succumbing to this force called resistance that I have to stop half explaining to now and I have to really explain okay, to you. Okay, I'll let you okay. do the thing. So the war of art is exactly what you think it is. It is like a soldier mentality to approaching, creating things. The back of the book says, in this powerful, straight from the hip, that's dangerous, examination of the internal obstacles to success, best-selling author Stephen Pressfield shows readers how to identify, defeat, and unlock the inner barriers to creativity. The War of Art is an inspirational, funny, well-aimed, kick-in-the-pants Guaranteed to galvanize every would-be artist, visionary, and entrepreneur. What does kick in the pants mean? Like a kick, kick in the ass. Kick in the pants? Kick in the pants. It's a kick in the ass. I was so repelled by the cover of this book is hideous. The name of this book I find offensive. <laughs> the first time I heard about it, it was like named in conjunction with Joe Rogan. And I was just like, this is not mm. a book for me. And then... I read the book and I love it. It's exactly what I needed. This is the first book that we're covering that is like actually a book that I go back to. I love this book. The title of all of his books are like this. I made a list. This is The War of Art. There's another one he wrote called Do the Work, The Warrior Ethos, Turning Pro, The Lion's Gate on the Front Lines of the Six-Day War. Nobody wants to read your shit. Why that is and what you can do about it. Uh, and put your ass where your heart wants to be is like another name of his book. What? Yeah. Do you want to know what the first book that Stephen Pressfield ever published was? Yeah. Okay. The first book that he ever published he was 55 years old when he published this book. What's it called? The Why Will My Dad Not Hug Me? <laughs> it was called The Legend of Bagger Vance. Wait, what? Do you know what that is? Have you heard of Isn't it? Isn't that a famous book? It's a very famous book because it became a very famous movie where Will Smith is a caddy to Matt Damon. Oh, that's where I know it from. Yeah. Wait, so he published his first book at the age of 55, which was a novel mm -hmm. that was made into a movie with Will Smith and Matt Damon. Mm -hmm. And then from then on, he's just been publishing books where he aggressively tells people to make art. He... Tells people to make art, but also he does like deep historical novels about 
the Greeks and the Romans and like war and warriors and the Amazons. And he like really well researched stuff that I would never read things that I would never, ever open. So yeah, his first book before that, he was writing movies. He was trying, he tells this story about how he has been trying to write books. And he's written a lot of books before The Legend of Bagger Vance. That was the first one he sold. But he, since he was like 23, he was trying to write a book. He was fucking up his life by like trying so hard and failing. And he didn't realize like that he was struggling against this other force that he names resistance with a capital R. I mean, no wonder he's angry if he's just been trying for 20 years. And but no wonder he's now like, just fucking do the thing. No one wants to read your shit. Like, he's just <laughs> furious. But he's not actually. When I even read in his voice, I think like, wow, this guy's just like an old cranky man. Before this podcast, I listened to him on a podcast, on the Rich Roll podcast, which I didn't know who Rich Roll was either, but he's like an ultra marathoner. And I was like, I couldn't have less interest in this, in this combination. But he's so nice. He's the Aww. nicest old man. And I like, I'm so happy and relieved because I've gotten a lot out of this book, but I'm always like weird that I'm getting so much from this ex-Marine Greek and Roman scholar, but I loved it. And I loved hearing him. He's just like a nice old man. Rich Roll spent like half of the podcast being like, no, but everything I am is because of you. <laughs> he kept going, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> like, it was so sweet. I love him. I love him. I really was prepared to be like, this guy is a lunatic, but he has some helpful things to say. And now I'm like, no, he's a great guy. I think he's a great okay. guy. I picked the book because I was deciding whether or not to do my first whole hour show of stand-up this year. And then as soon as I decided to do it, I immediately was like, no, that was the worst decision I've ever made. This is terrible. I had so many really good reasons why it was awful, why it was like bad for me, bad for my family, bad for the world, <laughs> bad for the future. And I was like, I need to go back to this book, The War of Art, and see if that can help me. I think it has helped me in some ways. Have you ever felt that, Sophie? Have you ever felt like such repellent feelings towards the thing that you a second ago thought was an exciting project yeah but i i don't get that feeling until i'm in the middle of it i never get it right when i just made the decision because then it feels like the best idea ever because the deadline is so far away mm -hmm. so i get it when the deadline is in two weeks that's when i'm like this was a horrible mistake and i am so dumb for having made it and i should never have done it and everyone will hate me Great. You're doing it right. It's supposed to get harder and harder the closer you get to the finish line. So correct. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Well, well done. Yes. <laughs> A plus. Okay. So this whole book is about, there's this force called resistance. He calls it resistance with a capital R and that it's not just you that are getting in your own way, that there's a real force in the universe trying to repel you from the path that you're supposed to take. And this was the hardest thing for me to get on board with when I first heard about this book, when I first read this book. And I just kind of like accepted that that didn't apply to my worldview because my worldview is things are good. The world is good. I have to believe that. But what I sort of got get from it now is that deciding that the voice in your head telling you not to do things is not you 
arms you to combat it in a way that you can't necessarily if you're just like, this is my rational self telling me the truth. But if you think of it as a force outside of yourself, then you can find a way outside of it. Like how are you supposed to get around it if it's you? One of my former therapists used to say that um, I needed to look at the voice in my head as a like a tape recorder that was glued to the back of my uh-huh. head where like it had nothing to do with what was happening right now or me. It's just like someone at some point glued a tape recorder to my head that is just repeating the same things. And I think that some kind of sounds like the same thing. I like that image. I also just like thinking about you wearing a tape recorder as a hat. Yeah, there was a lot of the sessions that was me thinking, how would that be stuck to my head? <laughs> like gaffer tape, like around my, like a headband, but with a tape recorder on it. <laughs> I dissociated a lot. Cool. That sounds like a really good thing to do in therapy. Couple. All right, Sophie, can you read the part that says, what is resistance? Because Stephen Pressfield says resistance can apply to anything in the world, any project that is going to take you to a higher plane. Resistance can come from anything. It can radiate off anything that is the thing that you want to be doing with your higher self. Okay, I will read. Have you ever brought home a treadmill and let it gather dust in the attic? Oh, he's hitting hard (laughs) from the beginning, isn't he? I'm still paying off a... um, a rowing machine that I gave away. So every month it's like, you have paid off your new adventure to become a person that rows. And like, I haven't had it in my home for five months now. It hurts. Anyways, I'm not going to answer that to every single one of his questions. I would Uh actually love that. (laughs) Uh, Next quote. Ever quit a diet, a course of yoga, a meditation practice? Three days ago, I downloaded uh, the Headspace app and I've not used it yet. (laughs) Have you ever bailed out on a call to embark upon a spiritual practice, dedicate yourself to a humanitarian calling, commit your life to the service of others? <laughs> Have you ever wanted to be a mother, a doctor, an advocate for the weak and helpless, to run for office, crusade for the planet, campaign for world peace, or to preserve the environment? Late at night, have you experienced the vision of the person you might become, the work you could accomplish, the realized being you were meant to be? Are you a writer who doesn't write? Kill me now. A painter who doesn't paint? An entrepreneur who never starts a venture? Then you know what resistance is. Well, I think I know what resistance is then. (laughs) (laughs) Help hold. Help hold. Help hold. Yes. And then... Like he describes what it feels like. Resistance feels like at first it's unhappiness. You just feel bad. When you're feeling the thing and you're pushing yourself away from it, it feels like misery and you're unsatisfied and you get depressed. You want to go back to, you want to go out and party. You feel compelled to do anything but the thing you're supposed to do. I wrote this the other day in my journal And when I was putting this together, I was like, oh, I maybe have to read it on the podcast because I was trying to talk myself out of being repelled by doing an hour of stand-up this year. And I wrote- this is the first ever live, well, not live, the first ever reading of Abby's journal on Helpful. 
It's the first, the first, the first of many, to be sure. Of probably many. These are my morning pages. This is a practice I do from Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, which we will talk about all the time. I just like go blah, blah, blah for three pages in the morning. Um, and this was part of it from the other day. It says, what else? I'm so scared of doing this that I feel literally like I'm on the high dive and jumping seems impossible, but so does asking the people below me to back away from the ladder so I can come back down slippery stairs. But that doesn't feel like a fair metaphor because we all know that it's pretty safe to jump into a pool. We all know that even if you hit the water funny and it stings, you get dragged under, you will bob back up to the surface because of the buoyancy of human bodies. And that if something terrible does happen on your way down, that you are jumping into a pool that's being looked at by people who are trained in first aid. The pool is a pretty safe place to jump. We all know that the better thing to do is to jump off the high dive than back down the ladder. But it's not the same because doing an hour of stand-up comedy could actually kill me. (laughs) (laughs) I've never used the word buoyancy in real life, in conversation, in books, and you just put it in your morning pages as if it's a normal word. I think that we need to have like a helpful glossary just full of words that we teach you on helpful and this imbibing, buoyancy. What was the other one? Scold and scald. Scold and scald. I think that was such a good description of fear. Yeah, and like when I was writing it, it wasn't really until I was writing the words kill me that I was like, that's funny. Probably it won't. <laughs> I was like, it really feels like that. It feels so scary that the only way that I can make it make sense is by believing this thing that he's talking about, about resistance. If I were hearing anyone else talk about embarking on a project the way that I talk about to my partner at night and to you in voice notes, me deciding to do this show, I would be like, just shut up and do it. What are you doing? That's interesting because my thought is if anyone's talked about anything like that with me, I would be like, well, then don't do it. (laughs) Why are you doing it if you think it'll kill you? Like there must be (laughs) some part of you that wants to do this, right? Yeah. You do it because it's worse to not do it. If it's better to not do it, then don't do it. (laughs) Exactly. That's the only thing that really can compel you to move forward is that it feels worse to not do it. But that's like maybe the point you have to get to, right? That's, I mean, like in alcoholism, that's the rock bottom or whatever. It's maybe the same in creating things. Certainly with stand-up for me, I thought stand-up was like the most embarrassing thing that anybody could ever say that they did. And then deciding to do it, especially before like it was going well or like anybody had ever thought I was good or I even thought I could ever be good. The idea of telling people that I was trying to do stand-up comedy as like a fully grown adult who had children, I just was like, there's nothing more humiliating than that thought. And I could only do it because not doing it felt worse. I I don't know how this applies to people who are not particularly doing stand-up. What I'm saying is I don't know if this next thing I'm going to say is relevant to other people, but the way I would do competitions, when you start out in comedy, there are a lot of comedy competitions where you do like five minutes and there are 15 comedians all doing five minutes and someone wins. 
And I would be so nervous to do that. And I would just be walking around waiting for it to be my turn. And I would just be like, I'm going to be so bad because I'm so nervous. And the way I got around that was by imagining that I wasn't doing it. Like imagine, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just an audience member. I'm sitting in the audience. I'm watching. And the second I put myself in that place, I started feeling desperate to get on stage. Like, oh, no, I wish I wish I was doing it because like it's an amazing audience. And I, I love doing comedy. And then I was like reminded of how much I actually wanted to do it. And then I could have fun with it. And I still do it sometimes when I'm really, really nervous. I'm just go, I'm just, I just pretend that I'm not about to do it. And that really works. <laughs> I love that. I think that is really one of the most pithy, helpful things that I re- regularly go back to. Is I don't know if pithy is the right word, so don't glossary that one. But whenever I go out and I'm just like grumpy to do a stand-up set at night, because I don't want to and my family is being cute and it's warm and I have to go bike through the rain or the snow to go humiliate myself for 10 to 15 minutes. My partner, whenever I leave, he goes, hey, have fun. (laughs) It's so helpful because I'm like, oh, right. Because what is the point of this? There is absolutely no reason to do this job if I cannot figure out how to have fun. I don't do mantras a lot, I think. But if I did, one of my mantras would be, it's meant to be fun. It's all meant to be fun. We're meant to have fun, be it about watching films, reading books, exercising, hanging out with friends, going to parties, like whatever it is, it's meant to be fun. Like I hear people all the time being like, I mean, we had it in uh, Atomic Habits where it's like going to the gym is a battle or like, I'm watching this TV show and it's really bad, but I'm going to keep watching it. Or we're so used to the feeling of things are meant to hurt or things are meant to be bad or hard that sometimes it's like, well, some things are meant to be fun, surely. Why are we doing it if it's not fun? And I have to remind myself of that sometimes of like, no one's asking you to do these things. You can have fun with it because that's the whole point of it. Otherwise, genuinely, what is the point? I really agree so much with that as like a route beyond how hard it feels sometimes. But I think it's like I have talked myself out of a lot of things I think I should have done because I'm like, well, it shouldn't feel hard. I think I've gotten to a point where I do really believe that some things being hard is is good for me. But it it's a different part of me that I have to make a decision with where I really know if it's the right thing or the wrong thing than the part where it's like, is it hard? Is it easy? That if I made my decisions just based on what feels fun or like I can do it, then I would not leave my house very often. Well, you're saying hard and easy. I think things can be hard and fun and things can be easy and not fun. I just mean things have to be fun. They can be hard too. It can be difficult and hard. Yeah. But fun is a whole different thing, isn't it? Yeah. But there's something like when I sit down to write, it's not fun. I don't have fun until I've been doing it for a while. And then it's not even quite fun. It's not fun like I'm whistling while I work. It's like something else. It's like my dog is chewing a bone again. (laughs) Oh, by the way, uh, my dog has been snoring through this whole thing. (laughs) And we just have to accept that because it sounds less less than if he was doing anything else yes it should be fun but i still need to get over this like entrance into the park for it to be fun if i need to like 
do a project, I have to get past all of the gates for me to decide that I'm good enough to do it, worthy enough to do it, that it's worth my time, that it's worth my family's time and like the sacrifices they're going to have to make if I decide to go on these things. And then once I've like cleared all those hurdles, I need to decide to have a nice time in the park and not just sit under a tree thinking about all the things I should be doing instead. I don't know why the park metaphor. I don't want to I don't want to be asked about the park metaphor. Okay, Sophie. I thought you were, I thought you meant an amusement park. Yeah, it could be an amusement park. Cuz that be, made oh, sense good. to me. Like it has yeah. to be fun cuz why else would you be in an amusement park? But you can't be like, "Well, I'm not going to go through the gates cuz that's not fun." It's like you have yeah, to go through the yeah. gates to get to the rides. You have to queue for the rides and then it'll be fun. So it made yeah. a lot of sense to me because I thought you were saying something smarter. I was saying that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Helpful. Here's the way you get yourself through the gates of the amusement park. Basically, disassociating yourself from this feeling. Because what we're so good at is rationalizing the actual reasons to not do something. And this thing that he does, this is the thing that I really don't like when people do, and it is often men who do it, who say things like, he has a part where he says about rationalization, the thing about rationalization and why it's so insidious is because it's often true. It's often correct. Often you shouldn't, he literally uses this as an example, sometimes your eight-month pregnant wife really does need you at home, but you still have to go to work and do the and do the thing. And like Tolstoy did this with 14 children. Like that's like an example in the book and an example that I've heard other places. It's like Tolstoy was not caring for those children. That's not the thing. There are things in life that we must do instead of our art. But I do find it helpful to question that every time it comes up, to be like, is this urgent or is this important? If it's urgent, it feels like you have to do it right now because it just came up and oh my gosh, you just got to take care of it. If it's important, it's the work and that's what you have to prioritize. So that's one way that you have to do it. You have to take this force out of yourself and you have to say, this is a force in the world because then you can discount the rationalization. How good are you at rationalizing reasons that you shouldn't be doing what you- Oh, I'm an expert on doing that. And I can manipulate myself and like trick myself into thinking certain things. Like I'm very good at that. And- the there's something that he says about the reason rationalization is important is because that resistance is just fear like the, it's fear of failing and it's also fear of he says this is a bigger thing but fear of success fear that you are actually as great or greater than you think that you are and you're going to find that out and that that's actually terrifying that that is scarier than this thing that we say we're scared of which is failing you're making a face do you feel like what do you think about that I just think about that so often where I'm like, what if, what if I was good at this? I feel like everything I've ever put out has been 80%, maybe less of my true potential. I have this mm -hmm. idea in my head that there's a true potential. I'm procrastinating so that I don't reach it. Yeah. I don't know what's scarier, the thought of reaching the 100% and realizing I'm the best thing to ever happen to the history of art or... <laughs> realizing that I, I'm not like that doesn't exist and there is a limit to my brilliance <laughs> yeah both scenarios are terrifying absolutely I really think 
That was one of the biggest things I figured out over the last few years is like, what I am afraid of is what I'm going to find out about myself from trying. When you see, <laughs> this is a horrible example. When you see videos of people in the gym and they can like hoist themselves up, like they can just, I don't know what it's called, do like a head. A pull up? <laughs> pull up, a pull up. When they do a pull up, I watch that and I think, I bet I can do that if I try. Not I can learn it or like if I try everything, but if I did it right now, I could for sure lift myself up. And that is the reason I don't do it. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't need to. Because I, I probably just could. But also, I don't think I want to learn if I am wrong about that. I don't want to know. Yeah. I've said that to people and they've been like, no, no, you can't. And I'm like, mm, yeah, you could. <laughs> I could, though. I definitely could. <sighs> it looks easy. I can, I can pull things. I've pulled things before. I, can pull I have made up. this motion with my arms so many times. Without holding myself up, what's the big difference? Yeah. If I'm what supporting my body weight. Yeah, it's my own body weight. If I can't lift myself, who can? Yeah. <laughs> There's a part of me that really believes that. It's the same with bears. I have it with bears as well. I genuinely don't think a bear would attack me. I know they're dangerous. Like, I know logically. But when I, like, whenever I see videos where someone meets a bear and they're like, oh, no, there's a bear. I'm like, <laughs> I, I And I know it sounds insane. Like, of course, I would have to force myself to, like, escape if there was a bear. But part of me would be like, nah, <laughs> we're cool. I think he can just sense it. I think he'll be able to sense, like, this is fine. Is there anything in the book about that? No, I'm just trying to leave a blank so that we can go helpful and I can get back on track. <laughs> My thoughtful pause there wasn't like, tell me more about the bear, Sophie. <laughs> helpful. Okay, well, let me explain to you rationalization and its purpose is that okay. what Stephen Pressfield says is the reason we have rationalization, the reason that we are so good at thinking of the reasons that we shouldn't be doing the thing and making up things that are more urgent and finding ways to make it make sense that we're not doing the thing that we want to have done, which is something my mom always said to me. And I always use that thing. It's like, what do you want to do versus what do you want to have done? That is a helpful construct for me because it's like, I almost never want to do the thing I want to have done or not almost never, but like, it is helpful for me to think of right now. Maybe I just want to like watch a movie, but I really am going to feel better if I have done the thousand words I wanted to write today or whatever, whatever, whatever. But the reason that rationalization is there is because resistance, the force repelling you from the thing, is just fear. It's just fear. And if you recognize that to yourself, you would be like, I am such a fucking little scared baby. And then you would just do it. So you have to have rationalization as a, as a buffer to trick yourself into not doing it for longer. Because resistance like creates it for you. That's like the, his thing. It's like resistance is a real force. It's a real force working against you. It is making you rationalize your fear so that your fear works. Okay. What do you think? I think this echoes a lot of what is talked about in psychology and therapy. And I, I don't know. I always feel a bit weird when men are like, I've come up with this theory that when it's like that's – is that a theory or is that just actually something that – has been explained a lot in psychology. I don't know. I feel like the idea of 
being like, well, it's fear, so you just have to get over it. That feels a bit redundant, and I wish there was a bit more sort of compassion. I think what's useful for me about this is that it's not that. I find it useful that he says, like, so what you have to do is, and he gives you things like, basically, I'm going to have you read this part, what he does. It's crazy. It's an insane amount of talismans that he involves in this process to get over this fear. Like he has like, okay, yeah, so let's read this. But what I think is useful about this kind of thing is I do want to hear people's reinvention of whatever reason, because whatever works for me is the thing that sticks. I don't want to read a psychology book. I would rather read this old man talk about how if he sits at the computer at the same time at his typewriter at the same time every day, then the muses will visit him. Yeah. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Read what I do. Oh, my God. Okay. I get up, take a shower, have breakfast. I read the paper, brush my teeth. If I have phone calls to make, I make them. I've got my coffee now. I put on my lucky work boots (laughs) and stitch up the lucky laces that my niece Meredith gave me. I head back to my office, crank up the computer. My lucky hooded sweatshirt is draped over the chair with the lucky charm I got from a... think this is a slur. I'm going to change that to Traveler in Saint-Maurice-de-la-Mer for only eight bucks in francs. And my lucky Lago name tag that came from a dream I once had, I put it on. On my thesaurus is my lucky cannon that my friend Bob Bassandi gave me from Morro Castle, Cuba. I point it toward my chair so it can fire inspiration into me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I say my prayer, which is the invocation of the muse from... I feel like this has all been a trap to get me to say certain words wrong. (laughs) Homer? Homer? Homer. Homer's Odyssey. You just say Homer as in Simpson. Yeah. Oh, okay. The invocation of the muse from Homer's Odyssey, translation by T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, which my dear mate Paul Rink gave me and which sits near my shelf with the cufflings that belong to my father and my lucky acorn. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, okay. Do you regret saying he just says get over it? No, he doesn't just say get over it. He has a lucky acorn. Okay, keep going. And my lucky acorn from the battlefield at Thermopylae? Yeah, someplace. It's about 10.30 now. I sit down and plunge in. When I start making typos, I know I'm getting tired. That's four hours or so. I've hit the point of diminishing returns. I wrap for the day, copy whatever I've done to disk, and stash the disk in the glove compartment of my truck in case there's a fire and I have to run for it. Have you heard of iCloud? <laughs> I power down. It's 3, 3.30. The office is closed. How many pages have I produced? I don't care. <laughs> Are they any good? I don't even think about it. All that matters is that I put in my time and hit it with all I've got. All that counts is that for this day, for this session, I have overcome resistance. All with the help of my lucky acorn. (laughs) What is happening? When I first read this book, I marked that corner and I was like, I almost stopped reading it. I just can't with this. Now when I hear it, I'm so fond. I'm so fond that he like shares that whole thing that he tells you how silly he is. He has to be about it to make himself work. I feel like what a gift. (laughs) I actually genuinely love it. I'm looking around, you know, because where we're recording this is also where I do my work. 
And I'm just like looking around being like, how many of these items around me are in any way meaningful to me, like really meaningful to me or inspiring? And how much do I even take it in? You know, how much do I sit and go, oh, that's that thing I got from <laughs> some person and whatever. That makes me want to create a space that is like, this is where I do this work. And this is all my inspiration. It is silly. It is weird. But I really like it. I really like it, too. I really feel like, too, there's this thing he does. I mean, he really believes in in muses and, like, angels that visit you while you're working to reward the fact that you're working. He really believes in the power of dreams. He, like, describes three dreams in the course of the book. It does take some magical thinking to think that, like, you can make something out of nothing and that I really, I like the way he shares it with you. And I like the dreams he recounts. He he recounts a dream that his friend had. She had a dream that she was on a bus, on a Greyhound bus, and it was being driven by Bruce Springsteen. And then Bruce Springsteen pulls over at a stop and says like, I got to go, you got to take it from here. And she's like, I don't know how, I don't know how to drive a bus. And he's like, I'm I'm sorry, I got to go. You have to drive the bus. And then he leaves and he thinks this dream is so powerful that he puts it in his book. This book is like 5,000 words. Every uh, chapter is like a one paragraph thing. He and his friend figured out that she was given the keys to the bus by, by Bruce Springsteen because he's the boss. And the boss, like now he makes her the boss and she has to just know that she's in charge of her life. I love that stuff. I don't I, hate that. I don't I think that's love wrong. It. I don't think and it's he, wrong. I don't know if it's right, but I don't think it's wrong. Yes. He does both things at the same time. He makes it this like war that you have to do. You just have to sit your ass in the chair. And then he's like, when you have a dream like that, don't waste it. Don't tell anybody except for repeat it to yourself and then there's one exception, repeat it to your comrades in arms. He says this like in the same sentence, he calls the other people who are struggling to create your comrades in arms. And he's like, tell them your important dream. This man contains multitudes. This is a war. Tell them your dreams. I just, I I like it. And he also has this dream, the name tag where it says Largo is because he had a dream where he was on a, a Navy ship. And everybody on the ship knew this guy was going to take care of everything and get them out of all this trouble. And he was so cool. And his name was Largo. And all these people were pockets of conversation like, we don't have to worry about this because Largo's here. And and he was always like, yeah, what a relief that Largo's here. And then he realized that actually Largo wasn't on the boat. And he was like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this mess? And who is Largo? He's not even here. And then somebody came over to him and was like, oh, Largo, thank God you're here. And it's the same thing as the Bruce Springsteen things. Like he's the one that can control the boat, that can get us out of this mess. His whole idea is that these insights come to you from dreams. Otherwise, you're just wandering around the world thinking there's got to be someone here who knows what they're doing. I really hope that Stephen Pressfield tries anti-anxiety medication. <laughs> dreams you get when you're on sertraline it is the wildest it's the only thing i miss from taking anxiety medication because <laughs> the dreams would it would they felt like little movies like it would last forever and i remembered every moment it felt so real 
that I felt like I hadn't slept because it was an entire movie in my head. I think he would love that. Have you ever had a dream that you feel like gave you an insight that you've used in your life? All the time. My therapist used to be like, well, all we need to do is just wait until you've dreamt something and then we know exactly what we need to do. Because it's, it's, they're very, very sim- simple. They're like, you are feeling this. Are you maybe angry at your dad? Here's a dream where your dad lights you on fire. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, the latest dream I had was that I was watching porn live. It was like a weird thing where you could go to a farm <laughs> and then you watched it live. And suddenly there were a bunch of comedians there and I felt really ashamed. I was like, oh no, oh no, they're see- like, why are they here? I'm here to watch this porn live. And it was like Amy Gledhill, Nick Helm, James A. Caster, Ed Gamble. And they were like, oh, hey, oh, you, you're doing this gig too. Oh, can you believe how much they're paying us? So they apparently they were like, there's like a gig where they pay comedians to watch porn. But I I was just an audience member. So I had to pretend and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm being paid too. And like, a gamble was like, can you believe they're paying us like 40,000 pounds? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that money too. <laughs> and I was so scared the whole way through that they were going to find out that I wasn't one of them. Hint, hint, hint. Oh, what that dream, my dream meant. God. And like, at the end... I don't think they found out. No, I don't think they found out. And then we were walking through this big thing and there was like an outdoor gym. And I was like, oh, that looks so cool. And then Amy Gledhill went into this gym and was and just started like working out with the other people there, these like cool model porn stars. And I was like, oh, so, so pathetic. I was like walking back and forth, pretending to be like on my phone because I wanted Amy to be like, hey, Sophie, join us. But like, I didn't want to ask if I could join. So I was just like really hoping that Amy was going to be like, come and be part of this. And then she didn't because she was working out. So at the end, I just went home and woke up. I wonder what that dream means about how I feel about comedy at the moment. Wow. (laughs) It's so like, you don't even have to analyze it. It's so obvious. Have you ever had a dream that gave you an answer? though because that just like restates your question (laughs) but I think that is an answer for me that is an answer because the dreams I have tell me about feelings that I'm not aware of or like I'm not aware of the seriousness of them so for me that dream is like oh I had no idea I felt this way this is something I need to look into so for me that that's the closest I'll get to an answer because it's like now I know what to work on I've had a lot of dreams where I am I have to take over a car. Not Bruce Springsteen has never left me uh, a bus, but similar things where it's like suddenly I drive the car, but it's always I then don't know how to drive a car and then things go badly. But those dreams are just me being like, oh, turns out I feel lost or I feel like I don't have control of my life. And that to me is an answer because my questions in life are like, how do I really feel? when I'm not running away from my feelings. And then my dreams come in and they go, okay, well now you're just asleep. So you can't run away from this feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I have had dreams that now feel like answers that at the time just were like, hey, crazy. But now I used to have a recurring dream where there was a witch chasing me. It started when I was a kid. There was a witch chasing me. And then I would like run through different kind of like scenes and places. And the witch 
would just change into wherever I was. Like I ran through a swamp and the witch was an alligator and I would run through and I would jump into the ocean. The witch would become a shark and like wherever I was, the witch would just become. And now I think I've been thinking about that lately. And I'm like, for me, like I can always find something to be afraid of. And it's, and it is often an interpretation of the same thing, but I was always like, weird, that one again. <laughs> um, and then one time I had a dream that my grandma who's dead was going to make me a ham pot pie, which was like our favorite thing to eat. And I loved eating it. And it's that like doughy stuff and ham and it was like a stew and it was so good. And we were in a car driving somewhere and she was like, I'm going to make you your favorite. I'm going to make you ham pot pie. And I had to tell her, I didn't have to tell her, but I was so ashamed of telling her that I was a vegan. <laughs> and then she, she knew or something, she found out. And I was just so like, dreading her knowing that about me and then she was just like i just make it a different way <laughs> and I was like oh <laughs> that felt like a time where I was like it was such a relief to think maybe it was okay for me to just like be the way that I was and that the people I was worried about disappointing didn't even care well they say that every not just person but every aspect of a dream is a part of yourself so like uh, when I've uh -huh. spoken to therapists about dreams, I've always been like, if the dream takes place in a big castle, the castle is also a part of you. Like if, if you're like, oh, this was a big, spacious, empty, cold place that is also part of you. Like there's a part of you that is an, a big, empty, cold space. From that point of view, it may, that would mean that you forgive yourself. Like in that dream, you would have forgiven yourself for doing something. For being a vegan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You forgave yourself for being vegan. I'm not sure I have forgiven Beautiful. myself for that. But that's, I think that's interesting, but I'm always like, that's too much for my brain to consider. Like I, <laughs> I prefer it to be more straightforward for my simple little thoughts. This is my biggest takeaway from this book. The most helpful thing that I have gotten from it. The biggest signpost that I go back to from it. And it is what happens when you conquer resistance that day that feeling where he's like how much did I write doesn't matter I did my duty for the day or whatever this is the part I have a thing for you to read I washed up in New York a couple of decades ago making 20 bucks a night driving a cab and running away full-time from doing my work one night alone in my 110 dollars a month sublet I hit bottom in terms of having diverted myself into so many phony channels so many times that I couldn't rationalize it for one more evening. I dragged out my ancient Smith Corona. What's that? That's a gun? That's a typewriter. Oh my God. Okay. It's Sophie. <laughs> Smith, that's a gun. Anyways. Dreading the experience as pointless, fruitless, meaningless, not to say the most painful exercise I could think of. For two hours, I made myself sit there torturing out some trash that I chucked immediately into the shit can. That, <laughs> that was enough. I put the machine away. I went back to the kitchen. In the sink sat 10 days of dishes. For some reason, I had enough excess energy that I decided to wash them. The warm water felt pretty good. The soap and sponge were doing their thing. <laughs> A pile of clean plates began rising in the drying rack. To my amazement, I realized I was whistling. Okay, so... I love him. I love him. Truly, also, 
him and Julia Cameron, I feel the same way about. Their yeah. writing is not anything I would ever envy. Like I would never think like, God, I wish I could write like that. The sponge and the soap were doing their thing. And I think that somehow helps me listen to them because I don't feel competitive at all. He has visualized how he wants his life to be. He's like, I'm an author and I sit down and then I write like this. Like he's in, he's in, he can see himself in like this like sepia colored light. Yeah. But he's like, this is so cool. I'm writing this sentence right now. And sometimes then, that's what you have to do. You have to be like, let's pretend that I'm a writer for a bit and then do the thing that a writer would do. He also is like a hundred years old. So when he sees himself in sepia tones, like that's just the way he sees things. <laughs> He's not learned how to see in full color yet. He yeah. doesn't see in HD. Yeah. But this feeling when I've done the thing that I am scared of doing, that is almost the way that I know the most what I'm supposed to be doing. The whole book repeats and repeats and repeats. Basically, the the stronger the resistance you feel, the more you don't want to do the thing, the more that's the thing you need to do. And that it's like a sign. It's like a marker. The more fear, the more resistance, the more you have like a thousand reasons not to do it, the more that's the thing. Which for me in the hour really is like, if I am to believe this, I should do the hour. So the hour of stand up. The hour of stand-up comedy, yeah. Because I didn't actually – I've been working on a book and I don't feel it the same way. I feel like that feels so like safe and I'm at home and I'm writing and if it's shit, nobody sees it be shit. And I just feel like – sometimes I feel this at the end of that day. But like when I make a move on this, the relief that I feel carries me skipping through the rest of my day. Almost the biggest marker that I feel – when I'm on the right track is how fun I am with my kids at the end of a day's work. And if I forced myself to do the thing, made progress in the place that I'm scared of making progress, I am such a fun parent at night. And I almost have to think about it like retrospectively then and be like, wow, okay, I guess that was the thing. Because sometimes I can't tell. I can't tell what I should be working on. I'm so good at this like internal monologue and trying to point myself different directions that I really am confused sometimes about what I should be doing. But at the end of the day, if I have the energy to like go along with my kids last night, one of them would only go up the stairs if I said, the opposite to him if I said go down the stairs and he would only take one step up the stairs every time I said go down the stairs <laughs> and the other one said well I'll only go up the stairs if you talk to me backwards so I took <laughs> turns for 45 minutes getting my kids up the stairs by saying by like going along with this and it made them like laugh and laugh but it was bedtime usually at bedtime I'm like this is over get in bed this is done but I did it for so long and we had such a great time that at the end of the day, I was like, this is because I booked that work in progress spot. This is relief. This is what it feels like when I've done what I'm supposed to do. And I'm not just languishing in like trying to figure out what's right. I like that a lot. That is what I need from that. Thank you for listening to Help Hole. We have a Patreon where we release bonus episodes that we, I'm sorry, fucking love. Uh, in fact, we love it so much that we've already doubled our release schedules for these bonus episodes. So for patrons, we're now a weekly podcast. Do we say patrons instead of patreons? I okay, think that's, it's patrons. Yeah. I mean, it should be. That's the real word. Anyway, our <laughs> patrons 
Also, get self-helping newsletters written by us, discounts and tickets to live shows, and we will answer your questions in our advice episodes, which we're going to start doing, I think, like once a month, once every couple of months, where we just answer questions. Depending on how many questions we get, yes. Depending on what you want. And you can sign up for it at patreon.com slash helphole. Also, please subscribe to Help Hole wherever you get your podcasts. And also, most importantly, tell people about it if you liked it, of course. Our next episode is going to be out where I'm going to tell you about self-compassion. And the last bonus episode we did was about the movie It and when I went to clown school. And the next one, we're going to give advice to Patreons that asked us for it. In the first two episodes, we said we were going to answer questions in these regular episodes, but it turns out books are long. That was not possible. Thank you to our wonderful producer, Amanda Redman, our Patreon producer, Lily, and also thank you to Nikki Elson for the jingle. Bye. Bye. Come home.